I'm Yoni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Hello, Yonit. I'm wondering if you are doing anything different from what we're doing here, because I am in hermit mode suddenly. <laughs> All over again, it feels very retro, because people here are being advised really not to, basically not to walk through their front door, not to leave, not to go to pubs or parties or anywhere else, if they value being with uh, family, etc. On December the twenty five, twenty fifth. I notice I'm holding back from saying what that day really is. But no, it's <laughs> it, it's been this. It's a strange sort of semi lockdown we're in here. Which it's is it's, the... it's strange that I uh, I asked you this, dear listeners, is what happens when I ask Jonathan to open up with a festive mode. <laughs> <laughs> a festive mode. So it's true. But we, um, it is one of these strange situations where everyone here is suddenly hunkering down because the advice from the doctors is if you value being together on what my late mother would have called krutzmach, then <laughs> then not that the medical advisors are using that term, I must uh, hasten to add, but they're saying if you want to be with family on the 25th, don't risk it, don't do anything else. So whole lots of things are being cancelled. Even just seconds before you and I started talking to each other, I got an email saying something else that was happening at the weekend has been cancelled. All because, and I know I made this point last week, but all because people who aren't Jewish think the only day you can get together with your family is on December the 25th. The other 364 days of the year, apparently nobody ever gets together. So in order to all be together on that day, uh, everyone must become like a monk and retreat uh, to the monastery. So that's what it's been. It's a bit like here. But of course, we soldier on. We will, we will. We, you know, how shall we say this in British? Keep podcasting and carry on. We are going to continue our podcast throughout Christmas and New oh, Year's. You're actually saying um, it. I did, I did. I thought, I didn't know we weren't supposed to say it. Um, yes, because we are, if you haven't, you didn't get that from the title, we are Jewish. I'm, I'm reminded of this perfect, the opening scene of mermaids. I'm dragging you into the movie world again. Remember that? Uh, that uh, like Winona Ryder is in her Catholic school uniform and she's praying in front of like the little Mary and Joseph and Jesus and then Cher, who's her mother, sort of cuts through the screen and says, Charlotte, we're Jewish. So best opening <laughs> line of a movie ever. So we're Jewish. And we decided to continue doing this podcast throughout the holiday season that is not our own. You've exposed another gap in my popular culture knowledge. I've never seen mermaids, I'm going to confess to you. I know you've seen Frozen 728 times. True. I haven't seen mermaids once, but you have now How made me think possible? this is essential. This is I know essential. you're the intellectual type and you're only watching more Bergmans. I know this, but come on. <laughs> Come on, you have to go see. It's a good yeah, Sergei Eisenstein movies, maybe. Um, no, I'm not like that about films at all, as you know, but I haven't seen Mermaids. Yeah, we are going to be continuing. So even if you are marking uh, Christmas and New Year, we will still be with you in your ear with podcasts aplenty because um, uh, Unholy doesn't recognize these intrusions into the calendar. <laughs> so that's um so that so we will be continuing on. And I suppose, I mean, you know, I know people, lots of them, who were planning to spend what we'll call the holiday season in Israel. And that is now looking, and in many cases just completely impossible, partly because you just can't get in to Israel yep. unless you are a citizen Com or permanent com resident. Completely impossible. I can't tell you how many friends of mine who are planning to come either from the US or the UK had to cancel. Uh, Israel essentially 
uh, restricting so many countries, uh, restricting tourists uh, generally, and then not allowing Israelis to travel to certain countries, and these uh, uh, restrictions are getting uh, tighter and tighter. Also, we're adding green passes for the first time. You have to have a green pass to enter a shopping mall. Um, yeah, it doesn't look great here. It's it, it seems a little bit bleak and a little bit of this uh, feeling of deja vu. We've done this. Uh, maybe we can get, get on with our lives. Uh, but sadly, not yet. No, I'm really feeling that. Just um, the other night, the my two sons were heading off uh, to see Arsenal play West Ham. And minutes after they'd left, I saw new advice from one of the senior medical advisors saying, don't go to a football stadium <laughs> unless you're going to get a vaccine. And it was almost a scene of me kind of running down the stairs and opening the front door going, come back. But I didn't actually do that because I knew how much they wanted to go. But no, we are in the era of big restrictions and so on again. But look, we've talked about COVID a lot. We have um, on the show this week a very special guest who will lighten things up quite a lot just with the sheer uh, brilliance of his reporting and his brain. Um, why don't you tell us all about him, Yoni? Many in uh, Washington and Jerusalem, and let's admit, around the world have been talking about one thing this week, and that is the explosive interview that former President Donald Trump gave Israeli journalist Barak Ravid for his new book, Trump's Peace, the Abraham Accords and the Reshaping of the Middle East, which was published in Hebrew last week. I have to tell you, uh, Jonathan, the book is excellent. I just finished it, and it's a riveting account behind the scenes of the Abraham Accords and the failure to reignite the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, the relationship between uh, uh, Trump and, and Netanyahu, and of course, uh, both administrations. So it, it gives me Great pleasure to uh, welcome to our podcast Barack uh, himself, who is a colleague and a friend and a man with incomparable talent and someone who got serious news outlets to actually say the F word this week so many times. <laughs> you must be so proud. Barack, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Yoni. Thanks, Jonathan, for having me. No, it's such a pleasure to have you on. It is quite true that I had not seen that before as the little Chiron, the kind of band across the bottom of the screen on Israeli television channels. Well, well, you, this is an adult podcast. Fuck him. Uh, They're yeah. in English amongst all Jonathan, the... Jonathan, I didn't know you can say that well, word we'll, out loud. We'll, we'll You're assume that the children are showing no interest in listening to me on this podcast, so they won't be hearing it. <laughs> There's something that surprised me, that it was, you know, in America, everyone said, F him, you know, you don't, because you don't say fuck him on, on television or whatever. Uh, but in Israel, I thought nobody would have any problem to say the Hebrew version of fuck him. And nobody said that. They all used fuck him as if when you say it in English, it's actually better, you know? It's definitely worse, I think. It's actually worse. <laughs> and, but it's, but, it, but that, was good. That, was your, that was the bit that was Trump to Bibi, that quote. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh, I'm, uh, my, my parents listen to this podcast, folks. So uh, I'm just saying <laughs> thanks for the intro. Um, you know, Barack, we're going to be listening to um, some clips that we we haven't heard uh, before of this interview of uh, of yours with uh, with uh, Donald Trump. And I want to open up with what he says uh, about the Jewish community in the United States, which is extremely interesting. Let's let's listen into a bit of that. I grew up where my father was very close to many Jewish people because it was Brooklyn real estate, Brooklyn and Queens, uh, many Jewish friends. Uh, a great love of Israel, which has dissipated over the years for people in the United States. I must be honest, it's a very dangerous thing that's happening. I told Avi, I told others, people in this country that are Jewish no longer love Israel. 
I'll tell you, the evangelical Christians love Israel more than the Jews in this country. It used to be that Israel had absolute power over Congress, and today I think it's the exact opposite. And I think Obama and Biden did that. And yet in the election, they still get a lot of votes from Jewish people, which tells you that the Jewish people, and I've said this for a long time, the Jewish people in the United States either don't like Israel or don't care about Israel. When you look at the New York Times, the New York Times hates Israel, hates them. And they're Jewish people that run the New York Times. I mean, the Salzburg family. A reminder, as we hear that, that this is a world exclusive on Unholy. Those clips have never been heard before. They come from your interview, Barack, with Donald Trump. And it is an amazing thing to hear because Donald Trump is something of a classic archetype there. The sort of some of my best friends are Jews guy who says apparently very pro-Jewish things. uh, And yet underneath it are a whole lot of pretty well classic anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, Later on in your interview, uh, uh, he goes on to say that Israel used to have absolute control of Congress. Uh, He talks about Jews with wealth and money. We know that he stood before Republican Jews and said, you know, you don't like me because I don't need your money. This is the guy who, after white supremacists went on the march in Charlottesville, said there were very fine people on both sides. So it seems to me that just in the 90 seconds or so we heard there, we have the whole lot, the apparently pro-Jewish veneer, and yet underneath a whole lot of negative stereotypes about Jews. No, I, I think it's it's really uh, it's really amazing because he's surrounded by Jews, like you know his son-in-law, his daughter converted to Judaism. He has Jewish grandkids. Uh, all of his his closest circle were people who were all Jewish. Uh, but I think that his thinking and his state of mind it's it's I think it's what's going on in America right now and it even uh, you know percolated into Israel in in recent years that it's not only about um, you know whether you're Jewish or not it's a lot about whether you are um, liberal or conservative and in America Jews are liberal at least the vast majority 75 80 percent. And I think that, you know, for Trump, being liberal is, is a much bigger sin than, than, uh, than being uh, Jewish. But, you know, what can he do? It's, there's, you know, it's the, same, it's the same folks. And I think that Netanyahu himself had the same uh, point of view and state of mind, especially in, in recent years where he thought that, the evangelical community is much more important to Israel than the Jewish community that he just threw under the bus with the, you know, with the with the Western Wall thing and with uh, conversion and with many other issues. No, I think what's interesting is he's maybe it's a generational thing, but he sees Jews in America and Israel as identical, and he's puzzled. He doesn't understand why doing it's some, more than that it's well why doing something for israel he, doesn't immediately make you popular with american jews he doesn't see that distinction you know several times during his presidency he even said okay to in 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 public events um he called dermer 
okay, when he spoke to, to Jewish crowd, he told them when he introduced Dermer, when he acknowledged Dermer, he said, your ambassador. Correct. That's what I meant. Exactly that. And okay, after the Tree ambassador. of Life shooting, uh, you know, where he, uh, in, in that synagogue there, he immediately invited the Israeli officials to be there when he came to show solidarity with, uh, the you know, the families and the bereaved. To him, in his mind, these are two of the same things. Exactly. You say your ambassador. It's so revealing. Again, I don't think that, you know, Donald Trump is anti-Semitic. You know, it's, I, I, at least not, you know, not in, in, in the way that, you know, if I'm trying to, again, he's not David Duke, okay? Um, but again, I think that he, as you said, he, see, he thinks that if, if he supports Israel the way he thinks support of Israel should look like, and Jews in America don't support him for it, then they're anti-Israel, okay? Which is, you know, a very strange way to interpret the world. You know, you have more uh, uh, hours with Jared Kushner and the inner circle uh, in the White House than any other Israeli journalist. Were they ever bothered by any of this to to the extent that you know? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, Because, again, I think that the way, look, Jared... And, and Ivanka and Avi Berkowitz, I think that at the end of the day, they were sort of um, stuck in the middle, meaning they were, mm-hmm. you know, liberals in a conservative administration and, uh, you know, Republicans in a democratic city. And they were, I think, sort of playing both, uh, mm-hmm. both camps, okay, even if not if not officially, and, you know, and I think that more than that, they're, you know, they're very conscious of, uh, uh, of Trump's uh, strong sides and, and his, uh, his, his more uh, weaker, weaker sides, and they were, again, I think they were trying to, their, their best to sort of balancing them out. I, I want to... Uh just kind of play another clip of this conversation. Um, let's hear what he says about Sheldon Adelson when you ask him specifically why it was so important for him to try and uh, make a deal between Israel and the Palestinians. I have been told by everybody that it's not doable. Sheldon Adelson said, it's not doable. The hatred is so great between the Palestinians and the Israelis. They learned from the first day they opened books, they learned to hate each other, especially the Palestinians toward Israel. He told me things that are horrible, what they say about the Jews to the Palestinians, what they teach the kids at a young age about Jewish people. And, and Sheldon Adelson, he was a friend of mine, just died, as you know, uh, and his wife Miri, Miriam is fantastic, a woman, fantastic woman. And Sheldon was a great deal maker. He said it's impossible. And you still believed it? You still believe yeah, it? Yeah, because I figured, look, you know the expression, what do you have to lose? Try. This is amazing stuff, by the way. I, 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 but we didn't ever, we should say something about the litmus test, right? There's a bad Jew, Salzburger, a good Jew, Sheldon Edelson. The litmus test is how loyal you are to Trump, which is interesting in itself. And Sheldon Edelson is great because he was, he's married to a woman, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the fact that he was challenged, kind of, he felt like he has to prove that he could get this deal because everyone told him it can't be done. Yeah, and with Sheldon Edelson, I think... The, the number one thing that made Sheldon so uh, influential on Trump 
uh, other than the huge donations he gave to his campaign, was the fact that Trump admired him for one thing, the fact that he started from nothing and got to, uh, you know, to be a, a multi-billionaire with 35, 40 billion dollars. And he said it like twice or three times during the interview how much uh, Sheldon was successful in, in business. And I think that, again, for Trump, there are two kind of people that, that he admires. It's generals and uh, billionaires. And, you know, Sheldon was in the billionaire category. And I think, you know, it, you could see how he admires him for the fact that he made uh, so much money. And this got Adelson a lot of influence on, on the policy. Uh, the Jerusalem decision, Sheldon tried to push Trump to do it on day one of his presidency. It was actually very close to, to that happening. And at the end of the day, Mattis and, and Tillerson, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, who back then... Trump still listened to them, you know, in the first day in office, uh, managed to get him to sign a waiver, and then he signed the waiver again, and it only happened like a year later. But, um, but Sheldon pushed very hard for uh, moving the embassy on day one. Uh, and Sheldon was sitting in the front row when the embassy was opened in, you know, 18 months later, uh, in, in May uh, 2018, Sheldon was there, his wife was there, and and all along he was he always had an open door to the president he could speak to him on the phone and he was very 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 influential by the way when you hear what trump says about netanyahu and the fact that how he feels that he cheated him that he conned him that uh you know his anger his frustration it is very 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 similar to the way that Sheldon spoke about Netanyahu in recent years. Interesting. And and I wouldn't be surprised at all, okay, if, again, I don't know this, it's just a guess, I wouldn't be surprised at all if a lot of the things that Trump said about Netanyahu, he heard from Sheldon Adelson before, mm. uh, because it's very similar message. You, you've talked uh, just then even about two of the big, big things partly because of the influence of Sheldon Adelson, that Trump did give to Israel and to Netanyahu in the form of the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal and the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. But your reporting also is really fascinating on what Trump refuses to give and doesn't want to give, and that is American blessing for Israeli annexation of chunks of the West Bank. And you talk about all the fallout of that and how it leads in some ways indirectly to the Abraham Accords. We'll come on to that perhaps. But I just want to know why that was, in your mind, such a red line for Donald Trump, why he balked from giving Netanyahu that last, you know, in the, in the, in the trilogy of, thing, of gifts, he held back from that last one. I think there are three main reasons. First, uh, you know, you would be amazed to hear, but I think that everything that had to do with territory, Trump really understood it and knew the details quite well, okay? I don't know if it's because of his, you know, real estate background or whatever. <laughs> he really got it. You know, for example, 
you know, he said he spoke to me about you know settlements and and annexation and said like. I told Bibi, you know, why are you doing this? You're taking away their their dignity with you building on their on the land that they want. You you're taking away their dignity. They're never going to co- you know cooperate in any peace talks with the way uh that you're handling this. And and so this is I think first reason he understood what it means, what settlements means, what annexation means. He understood what it means on the ground. Second, I think that his team, especially Kushner and also Avi Berkowitz, were very, very, very much against annexation. And, you know, he listened to them on those uh, things. And third, which I think is the most important, is that Trump really wanted to get the deal. Okay? First, he wanted to get it because he wanted to be, as always, to be the one who managed to do what everybody else couldn't. Okay? It is, you know, um, part of his personality. Um, but more than that, I think he figured, it took some time, but he figured that when he brought this peace plan and, and released it on January 28th, 2020, he wanted to do it. He didn't think that the Palestinians would, would come to the table, but he wanted to lay the ground for a possible second term so that when he comes at a second term, he doesn't need to start working on it from scratch, that there's already a plan and the Palestinians know that they're stuck with him for four years with this plan, so maybe they'll come back to the table. Mm-hmm. And if Netanyahu starts annexing uh, um, the West Bank, he basically ruins any possibility for him to do anything in the second term. And he realized that Netanyahu doesn't really doesn't care about his plan. He doesn't give a shit. He only cares about getting this land grab. And and mm-hmm. it took some time, but he understood. And you can you could see the moment where the penny dropped. January 28th, the ceremony is happening. Trump starts listening to Netanyahu's speech. At the beginning, he's, he looks quite happy. But then you see, when Netanyahu starts talking about annexation, you see Trump looking at Kushner, who sits in the front row, and like doing this face of like, what the hell is he talking about? What's it? And when the ceremony ended and Netanyahu went back to the Blair House across the street from the White House, Netanyahu... Um, Trump went to the Oval Office with his aides, and first thing he told him is, what the hell was that speech? Because he just couldn't understand mm-hmm. where this thing came from, because he never signed off on anything like that. And, you know, there's and Friedman had to walk across the street to the Blair House. Netanyahu was celebrating with his staffers, and then Friedman just, like, uh, told him, no, this is... The whole thing is off. And I remember one of Netanyahu's aides told me that he went with several other advisors to the um, to, to a steakhouse near the Blair House. And the steaks just, you know, arrived at the table. They literally put the steak in front of him when he got the call from Netanyahu telling them, come back now to the Blair House when wow. this whole crisis uh, started. So they took the steaks to go and they never... They never really aid them. I want you to help me with one of my prejudices, Barack, because I start off, from, I go into this with a very low opinion of the Trump, of Trump himself and frankly the Trump administration. And your point that they didn't foresee the, that there would be fallout from moving the US embassy uh, to Jerusalem only confirms my kind of prejudice that they just were went into this with great ignorance. So my question a bit about the Abraham Accords is, to what extent do you believe that would have happened Anyway, to if Joe Biden had been in that office at that time, he'd have got it. 
Or do you think, despite my prejudices, I should let them go and actually Trump and Jared Kushner and the rest deserve some credit for brokering the Abraham Accords? So first, you know, on a factual level, President Obama was in office eight years. He tried doing, and Secretary Kerry in the last four years of the Obama administration, they tried to do it again and again and again. They couldn't, okay? So that's one. Second, in the book, and I write it in the book uh, quite at the beginning, I think that if Trump was not the president of the United States, the Abraham Accords wouldn't have happened. Okay, why? Because Trump did three uh, things that I think really contributed to it. First, the people he appointed, okay? That, as you said at the beginning, I think they had, uh, you know, big lack of experience about what the Middle East peace process is, okay? Uh, but at a certain point over the years, they became more experienced and, and I think they started doing the right things. And he appointed the people in his closest circle. So if they get something right, you know, he deserves the credit for it. That's first. Second, his policy in the region, I think, really contributed to the Abraham Accords. Withdrawing from the Iran deal, which, again, I think it had, you know, devastating consequences when it comes to the Iranian nuclear program. But it also had positive consequences because it got Israel and the Arab countries closer together, and both sides had more uh, confidence and intimacy and, um, and I think, trust in, 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 in the White House and in Trump uh, personally. And I think the last thing, which it was, he got criticized for it, but I think he deserves credit for it, that he was willing, you know, to put his hand into his pocket, take out U.S. tangibles and give them to those countries in order for them to take that step. And, um, and I think without that, I'm not sure those things, those uh, agreements um, would have happened. So... Because of those three, three things, uh, and the fact that, by the way, at the end of the day, he blocked Netanyahu's annexation uh, push, okay? And, and by blocking it, he, Netanyahu didn't have any other choice, so he, he had to, you know, to move towards the, the Abraham Accords. So I think that Trump really deserves credit for it, Trump and his, and his team. Um, and along those years, they built very close relationship with the UAE. The UAE was the biggest ally of the of the Trump administration in the Middle East from not, even before day one. You know, Mohammed bin Zayed, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, uh, sought uh, Kushner and Bannon um, in in New York during the transition already. Uh, so I think that when you take all all of those things together, you know, you have to give them credit. Okay. By the way, this does not mean in any way that the Abraham Accords were part of a choreographed uh, 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 move and a you know, well-thought-of strategy. It was a solution that came quite, you know, I don't want to say by accident, but, but you know, it was, it was, an, it was impro them improvising during a big crisis between Israel and the U.S. over annexation and... The Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, and the Emirati ambassador to, U to the U.S., Yusuf El-Oteiba, basically gave them, both of them, both Trump and Netanyahu, a ladder 
to climb down from the tree and to avoid this clash and to turn it into something very constructive. Let go and of very your prejudices, stoic. Mr. Friedland. That's what he's trying to say. Give him credit. <laughs> the rea- reality is complicated, Jonathan. It's not all black and white. Every day, in every way, you are making me a better person. And Barack, <laughs> Barack, you have done your bit. It's a fascinating <laughs> account. You can read it in your reporting in uh, through Axios, but also if you're a Hebrew speaker. And waiting breathlessly for the book to be translated into English. Jonathan can read it in Hebrew, but it will take him time, so he's really waiting for you to translate it, it, if you can. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I hope that in the next six months, I'll be able to come here again, this time with... uh, with That will be great. Fingers crossed. And it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. It was fun. It is all such a completely fascinating story that Barack Ravi tells. And, you know, one of the things that just amazes me about it is Trump and Bibi did for so long seem like two peas in a pod. And, you know, I, among others, wrote that, you know, that it was the right way to see Trump was as the American Bibi rather than seeing Bibi as the, the Israeli Trump, partly because Netanyahu got there first. But they did seem like you know, fellow traveler soulmates, really, in in this new populist, nationalist kind of politics. And yet there they were falling out bitterly. Yeah, I think, as Barack describes it in his book, it, it starts with the fact that, that Trump wants Netanyahu to agree to a deal. He wants to bring the deal. And then he sees that Netanyahu doesn't play along. And that gets him, you know, he gets upset. And of course, the final brick falling is when Netanyahu does congratulate Joe Biden. By the way, not the first person to congratulate him, like Trump says, but a lot after that. And he says, you know, uh, uh, by the way, Barack had two conversations with Trump. One was in April, one was in July when Netanyahu was no longer prime minister. And there he says something interesting that wasn't quoted a lot. He says, you know, I still like Bibi, but I like loyalty which is a very interesting uh, uh, sort of window into Trump's soul, I think we need to ask ourselves, this is not just folklore, this is not just gossip, because these are two politicians who want to return to the stage. What will their relationship look like if they do? And how much damage does this uh, uh, have for Bibi himself uh, in Israel? And I think that could be uh, quite quite extensive because of the fact that he presented himself, you know, as this great friend of, of the American president. This isn't uh, great news uh, for him. But we should move no, on. No, I think a, oh, I, I, we, we definitely should. I was going to say journalists get a lot of flat for talking a lot about Trump and a lot about Bibi. But for the reason you've just said, it's justified because both of them want to come back and could come back. So I think it's completely sure. legit. But yes, we should move on and hand out some awards. Um, it falls to me uh, to give out our Mensch of the Week award. And it's a re- slightly, it may seem a retro one, but it is my chosen recipient is 97 year old former American president Jimmy Carter. Carter's name is around a lot at the moment, partly negatively, with people hostile to Joe Biden comparing Joe Biden to Jimmy Carter, who famously was a one term president and so on. But there is a very strong case to make for Jimmy Carter in all kinds of unlikely ways. And this week, um, it emerged partly to um, to mark and the anniversary of an extraordinary event that happened in 1952. It was the world's very first nuclear meltdown, and it happened in a nuclear reactor in Ottawa in Canada. And the Canadians called for help to the Americans, who were then the absolutely leading the world in nuclear technology. And the Americans sent a team, a military team, 
to deal with this first nuclear meltdown. Heading the team was a young US naval officer, one Lieutenant Jimmy Carter, and he was brought in and put in charge of containing the disaster. It's an incredible story. It's like an action movie. He led a team of two dozen, aged 28, Lieutenant Carter, or Lieutenant Carter, as we would say here, courageously had himself lowered into the damaged reactor, exposing himself to a thousand times the level of radiation considered safe by today's uh, standards. And he did uh, solve the problem. Hydrogen explosions followed the meltdown, which had caused hundreds of thousands of gallons of radioactive water to flood into the core. It caused huge panic. It would have been an, a, a massive disaster. Uh, the only solution was to shut down the reactor and disassemble it and replace it. And Jimmy Carter led the team hands-on himself doing it. Apparently, Carter's urine tested positive for uh, uh, for radiation for six months later. And yet here he is now, all these years later, age 97, still, you know, hammering nails and building those homes for Habitat for Humanity, homes for the homeless. He is an amazing man, whatever you think of his presidency. So he's my suggestion for Mench of the Week. Um, wow, this is an amazing story. It's a Netflix movie waiting to happen, you have to admit. Mm. Um, and I don't know why you sent me this story, and possibly because I'm a, a you know, American uh, politics and American history um nerd. It reminded me of, I don't know why, I'm going 28 years uh, forward in time from what you described, the 1980 debates between Carter, debate between Carter and Reagan, which obviously famously Carter lost. But in that moment, I think it's a it's a, such a famous gaffe of his. He talks about uh, nuclear pro- proliferation. And he says, my 13-year-old daughter, Amy, and I talked about this, and it's considered one of his biggest gaffes and one of the reasons he lost. You know, And you think of that, just the combination, and you tell this heroic story of him a 1952, and you think of that, just that combination of what politics and fate and media can do to a career. Um, I don't know, it's something to think about. Anyway, moving on to the Chutzpah Award, which surprisingly lands in my lap again. Um, I will (laughs) give it to a story um, uh, from uh, uh, Chaim Levinson, a journalist in Haaretz, who um, uh, published this today about a senior commander uh, on the security unit of the Shin Bet, who's also a sports fanatic, and it appears that while he was on this uh, runner's social network, he revealed state secrets while he was running and while he was supposed to be protecting Israeli officials like uh, Naftali Bennett in his visit to Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi. So anyone could basically go log into his documented uh, runs and see where he is at the time, uh, which goes to show you basically that either you want to be on security detail or you want to show off that you're an athlete. Don't do both at the same time. That is good advice, as so often. Watch mermaids and do not go running when you're a <laughs> member of Israel's top security team. I think All that was pretty advice. specific. Pretty specific. Yeah, you yeah. come. People come to Unholy for advice on movie how to recommendations live. and how to live. <laughs> It's news you can use from two Jews on the news. Um, it is so good to be uh, speaking with you, Yoni, as we will be doing for the next couple of weeks through the holiday season. Remember, we are not going away. We will be in your podcast feed on the eve of Kratzmach and on New Year's Eve as well, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. Uh, we take, well, you're taking no vacation where you are. I'm going to try and do something here. But do, if you like it, do listen, subscribe, rate us, and generally spread the word about Unholy. 
Yes, and we will say thank you to Leo Friedman, our EP, Rom Atik, Omer Primat, Irad Eshel for original music. Special thanks to Richard Myron and no rest for you, Jonathan. We shall meet next week. See you then. <laughs>